Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. All conversations and information exchanged during participation in this podcast or interaction on the doctor.com website is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Do not confuse this with treatment or physician medical advice or direction per se. You must always follow your medical professional's advice and direction. Nothing on these podcasts or posted on this site supplements or supersedes the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Please understand, I am not playing the role of physician in this environment per se. I'm educating. I am a licensed physician with specialty boards in American Board of Internal Medicine and American Board of Addiction Medicine. Hey, this is Dr. Drew, and you are listening to This Life with Bob Foy and Dr. Drew. Here we are. Not today, however. Today, Bob Forrest is being replaced by the great Simone Bien. Thank, Thank you for you sitting very in. much. Thank you for being here, Simone. Simone, put your mic a little closer to your mouth. Uh, Simone, talk, talk to us about your stuff before we go to our special guest, our other special guest. Um, like, where can people find you? What are you working on these days? So, um, so I'm very excited. I've been hiding for about two years. I'm aware of that. Little <laughs> um, encephalitis in the middle there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, literally, exactly. uh, literally. Uh, an iceberg seizure. And um, but I've been hiding, and I've been working on um, a new like a new brand mm-hmm. where um, I've gone beyond just traditional sex therapy mm-hmm. and I've been training and studying very hard um, NLP and hypnosis mm-hmm. and became an NLP trainer, which basically means sort of really working with people's unconscious minds mm-hmm. and then just uh, helping them be the best that they can be. And whether somebody is super successful, because I think in the, in the West, there's so much emphasis on success, mm-hmm. and I think we've forgotten or haven't necessarily been taught how to be happy. And well, I think we're even confused about what we mean when we say happy now. Yes, in this country, but uh, and more than anything, I feel that the the, the greatest uh, liability of that or the casualty of that has been our interpersonal impoverishment. Yes, yeah, and and that's going to get worse. And now we're seeing also that in companies and corporates. Mm-hmm. And so there is a big drive where Drew, you and I are going to go around all. Google is first, or certainly on the list. But <laughs> we are going to go around because what's very very interesting is in in uh, if we look at the workplace where you, we can have an opportunity to influence a lot of people. Um, happy people make money. Shocking. Yeah, happy people. When employees have um, workers who, you know, people who work for them who um, uh, feel appreciated, that is a bigger motivator than 
any pay increase. And that is what is absolutely stunning. And there are two uh, research papers that I could cite which shows that. But actually, CEOs talk about the fact that they don't know how to... They don't know how to do that. So um, so that's why uh, there's going to be a new revolution on how to be happy. Simone's going to lead it. Amen. <laughs> Before we get to that revolution, though, I want to welcome to the program Dr. Jonathan Steya, clinical psychologist at University of Calgary, specializes in addictive psychiatry, concurrent, co-occurring, and addictive uh, psychiatric disorders. Uh, he recently wrote an article published in Scientific American called Is Cannabis Good or Bad for Mental Health? The evidence says it can go either way. Dr. Steya, welcome to the program. Thanks very much, Dr. Drew. I appreciate the invitation. What, what I like about the legalization of cannabis is we can finally start to have rational conversations about it. Before, because of the sort of uh, ludicrousy or inconsistency in our laws, you'd, you'd start to have a scientific or clinical conversation and people would just get in, enraged and just couldn't even hear what you tried to say. We've gotten over that now. Now we can begin to talk about this chemical. I, and let me just frame the good or bad uh, thing for a second. There's no such thing as a good or a bad molecule. They're just right. molecules. They're just these molecules, and they have good or bad effects on the human body and brain, and we have good or bad relationships with them. It's just our relationship with these these molecules and their effect on our physiology is all that matters. The molecule is just a molecule. It's not, not good nor bad, and the fact that we make them evil is weird. <laughs> Would you agree with me, Dr. Steya? I, I 100% agree with that. So uh, I think – Go ahead. I was going to say I agree that legalization is a good thing because uh, cannabis research can kind of get on their way here. And and as you said, you know, I think especially with cannabis, we can't really pigeonhole it as either being good or bad or helpful or harmful. Um, and particularly with cannabis, because it's it's more than one molecule. It has over 500 identified chemicals in it, and over 100 of those are cannabinoids that have different effects on us. So it's, uh, it's sort of an umbrella term when we talk about cannabis. And, and to be fair, even if we were talking about a more unified mo- single molecule, you can't say that about any molecule. <laughs> all good, all bad on effects on us. It, you know, it, totally totally can- agree. Cancer chemotherapeutics, not something you want to expose yourself to, but if you need it to kill cancer, good molecule. Uh, Oxycontin, Opana, if you're an opiate addict, bad molecule. If you have pancreatic cancer, good molecule. It's just it depends right. on the context. So let's let's get at it. What what did what was your what? Give us the sort of uh, zeitgeist on the article. What are the basic beats? Well, I you know I in the last several months or so I tried to undertake my own form of knowledge translation. There's a lot of misperception out there in, in popular media about cannabis, and so I, I set out a I published a series of opinion articles. Uh, one was about trying to dispel the false narrative that a cannabis addiction doesn't exist. And then this one sort of piggybacked on that one, um, talking about um, the, the, trying to highlight the complex relationship between cannabis and psychiatric disorders, because there's a lot of misinformation out there in terms of people touting cannabis as sort of a, a panacea for, for all ailments, um, but know. particularly psychiatric disorders like yeah. depressive disorders and anxiety and, and psychosis. And so I just wanted to, uh, put out a piece that kind of highlights the the gap between the hype and the evidence-based research that supports the hype. Let, let's start with the addiction thing, because I've, I've treated literally thousands of cannabis addicts, and usually they come in, by the time they come to treatment, they're usually polyaddicted. It's usually alcohol, stimulant, and cannabis. But the, the drug that they have the most difficulty stopping is the cannabis. Why is that? Because they love it. Yeah. And if you're going to be an addict, if you're going to 
if that syndrome develops in you, it develops because you have this very powerful, literally romantic love. It's it's the it's it's an activation of some of the nurturing molecules in the brain, or an upregulation of these areas. So people feel they'll describe they'll describe what heroin addicts describe, like being wrapped in a warm blanket, right. mom nurturing, all these things. And it always happens exactly the same way in my experience. Almost nobody gets high on cannabis the first time they use it. It needs some sort of priming. Typically, third to fifth exposure with almost always the third exposure, then they'll get super high. And when they have that high, they remember that moment. And they'll just say, oh, my God, this is the greatest thing I've ever experienced. Well, Simone, if you've just experienced the greatest thing of your life, Uh what are you going to wake up thinking about doing the next morning? Yeah, absolutely. And that's how it goes. Boom. That's it. And I, and having seen that many, 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 many hundreds of times, and just and and by the same token, there are plenty of other people that get addicted to other things that have no uh, sort of attraction to cannabis. They don't like it. So there's something different in the people that uh, are genetically prone to this, right? Yep, absolutely. Um, you know, uh, cannabis addiction has similarities and differences to other kinds of addiction, and it's. Uh, it's a bit of an odd thing that people would say that a cannabis addiction doesn't exist. But I think when people say that, they tend to um, try to compare it to uh, something like a, a heroin addiction or an alcohol addiction. And, and sometimes they could look a bit differently. And it's so, different. Yeah, it's um, different. That's, not, that's not to negate from the actual construct of a cannabis addiction. And, yeah. you know, there's some, there's some research that has come out that's shown about um, that cannabis and particularly THC might have less addictive potential compared to some other drugs like oh, alcohol and oh, heroin and sure. cocaine. For sure. But, but when you look at the absolute prevalence rates, cannabis addiction accounts for the highest among all illicit substances. Oh, that's interesting. I, cannabis addiction. I wasn't yeah. aware of that. The, the other thing about cannabis addiction, it is something that occasionally people can put down. So they can stop doing it. Uh, and, and then people will point at the – they'll go, well, it's just psychologically addictive. I, there's no such – things. What are does either, that mean? Nothing. Right. Things are either addictive <laughs> or they are not. And if they are not, we understand a particular biology has been activated. And it has psychological features. Right. But there's, there's, to my mind, there's no such thing as psychological addiction. It's yeah. either – you either have the biology of addiction, your ward system, your medial forebrain bundle is overtaken in the shell of the nucleus accumbens. Some genetic mechanisms are activated and that's it. Or you can stop. And if you can stop, you don't need to see me or Dr. Shea. Well, yeah. it, yeah, Dr. Drew, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say I'm on board with you 100% on that. Um, you know, that, that distinction between psychologically addicting and physically addicting reminds me of that old that old school Descartes Cartesian mind-body dualism. Right, right. We know that, you know, nowadays that's not a scientific reality. The mind and body are so intricately connected that um, – that that's just not the case. And especially since, you know, we've identified an endocannabinoid system and there's cannabinoid receptors and antagonists and agonists. So that can produce a cannabis withdrawal syndrome. So whether you want to call it psychologically addicting or physically addicting, the cannabis cannabis addiction fits both ways. And people, the craziness that that people go, well, there's an endocannabinoid system. It's natural. There's an an endogenous opioid system too. There's Ah. an endogenous benzodiazepine system and the GABA system. You have to have these endogenous systems for us to build the pharmacological agents to stimulate them. Oh, how interesting. So I've heard Indian gurus talk about how, uh, you know, people are very addicted to cannabis and they're like, but but look at us. We look like we're stoned all the time. (laughs) Well, that's a now you're tapping on something that's beyond the scope of today's conversation, which is can can we induce altered states of consciousness 
that are helpful to yeah. us, which is a big conversation. Do, do you study any of that stuff, Tuchstaya? Um, not, not so much. I'm sort of following the, the links between uh, psychiatric disorders yeah, and yeah. Uh, cannabis, but yeah, that's yeah. certainly a uh, fascinating area. And I don't know if you've heard of the uh, cannabinoid deficiency syndrome, which I've kind of come across. And I think that's you know, all my drug addicts. My, my yeah, you'll, <laughs> you'll get some hardcore advocates advocating that all of us are kind of deficient in cannabinoids, and so we need cannabis to thrive. And um, I, there's there's not much merit for that at a at a general population level. Maybe a very small subset of people well, who have and, and again, how can it's it's it, endocannabinoid system is a neuromodulatory system, so it is no absolute value right. like like a serotonin level or something. You know what I mean? It's it's presynaptic, isn't it? Primarily a presynaptic system. Um, yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Endocannabinoid system, yeah. CB1, CB2 receptors found throughout the brain and body. And they're, they're regulatory. They're, right. not, they're not a direct synaptic transmission sort of thing. Can I ask a question as a complete layperson from the outside? Because um, coming from England, cannabis, uh, alcohol is our drug, mm-hmm. and um, <laughs> more than cannabis. And now, interestingly, ju- they've just started, the NHS, our National Health Service, has yeah. just started sort of allowing cannabis, you know, the treatment of cannabis using cannabis and treatment for pain and things for pain which is fantastic but here's my thing um i'm one of those people um who uh, has smoked cannabis Mm -hmm. and was sick when i was 14 and have you just didn't like it yeah so it's different genetic thing yeah for you but what scares me and this is what i'm really really keen to hear about when you have somebody who is um like for example under 25 with the cannabis that is available today um people being, who said so powerful uh, yeah it's like three times or, or whatever it, you know the you, you'll both know yeah. but ha, okay I, so, so I, let's how get into can it. that not let's, be dangerous let, let's get into it well it can and it can't right. so so let's talk about the the issue of a developing brain and the overlap with uh, co-occurring disorders go have at it well, the, I think you're, you're speaking to the potency of cannabis products kind of increasing over time, too. And, and certainly that's, you know, that's, uh, that's a risk. I mean, overall, cannabis is, is relatively safe if people follow um, low-risk using guidelines. So mm-hmm. things like not using those high-potency THC products. But right. nowadays, when, when you, you know, we're talking about smoking cannabis, people are extracting very high to- potency high potent thc products and making things like shatter and then they'll they'll dab them and the problem with that is that it's very hard to titrate someone's dose so that can induce a very um overdose is the wrong word for it i would say a kind of over intoxication where people can have very acute episodes of very intense anxiety and panic and and even psychosis and so that's not a good idea and in terms of the developing brain, I think not not too much is known about that, but it doesn't sound like a good idea when the brain is still developing among adolescents. Well, we so, have we have all that data. I mean, I've seen all that neuroanatomical data that suggests that there can be some actual structural changes both in adults and adolescents. But in the adults, the the vis- what you see structurally repairs goes back to normal. But in adolescents, it can be permanent. That's the gosh. that's the prevailing wisdom anyway. Do you, is that true, or is that uh, now been? shot down i honestly i think there's there's so much conflicting evidence in the literature for yeah. every finding that i read about there's a conflicting finding yeah um so it's it's really hard to interpret and i think that's why this stuff is so important to talk about 
And what about the 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 most complicated thing for me? And again, I'm I am not anti-cannabis, and I'm not anti-cannabis legalization. I'm just a realist, and I'm a clinician, and I I worry about every chemical in our relationship mm-hmm. with it, right? Uh, and there's good relationships and bad relationships, and there's you know people that are for whom it's not a good thing, or for whom it doesn't matter, or for whom it is a good thing. Um, but the issue of uh, precipitation of psychotic illness that that's another area of of confusing, conflicting data. We're, 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 how do you make sense of that? Yeah, that's a, certainly a fascinating area. I mean, we, we have evidence that acutely, so in the short term, THC can produce psychotic features and, and synthetic, so um, synthetic THC can also produce a kind of psychosis in people. And we know that in the long term, it does seem to be the case that THC increases the probability for developing a psychotic disorder among people who are already vulnerable. So they, ha- they already have a genetic predisposition or they have prodromal symptoms of psychosis. That risk, though, is small, but it increases with frequency of use and with those high THC potent, uh, potent products. Uh, very, very interesting new stuff, though, is the research with CBD. Yeah. Because there, there's research that shows that CBD has antipsychotic effects, and there's actually been some human trials to show this, that they're comparing it as a... Uh, to antipsychotic uh, medications. Interesting. Or yeah. you wonder if maybe it would reduce the risk of of developing into a full psychotic illness. Wouldn't that be great? Um, yeah. So, so other than a prodrome, so we got to define things for people. But psychosis, we mean being disconnected from reality. It's a thought disorder. You get delusional, paranoid, irritable, hallucinations, that kind of thing. Um, and in terms, other than pre or prodromal psychotic symptoms, how do they know somebody's at risk? I mean, how, what what was that? That study seems a little vague to me. Well, it's it's hard to know. Yeah, so to determine a genetic predisposition, it's hard to know. Um, probably, the, probably the best indicator is to look at a family history. If people have family history of people in their families with psychotic disorders, okay, it's probably so it's... not a good idea to experiment with it. But other than that, you know, psychosis typically has an onset around late adolescence, young adulthood. So if symptoms start to emerge around that point, and if you're using cannabis and you start to feel really, really super paranoid, you're, you're hearing auditory hallucinations, those sorts of things, it's probably not a good idea to use it if you those folks. So that's what it's the first day that our producer has. Susan has. That, that. would be me. So you're, 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 that's, why you're, you're that's why I don't smoke pot. Susan's pre-psychotic. Is what I, I'm sure so. there's people, there, there were psychotic people in my family. So um, now I, I, on the other hand, got panic attacks. Yeah, me too. Uh, but Yeah. She, I, Susan actually had a panic attack from C- Post CBD exposure, but I I've gotten panic attacks. Yeah, I took one CBD and had panic attacks, and that was it. The next so morning. so, so actual CBD yeah. rather than THC, right? CBD THC was even worse. I w- I got paranoid and delusional. Wow, and delusional. What did you think? I don't know. There's I was only of, eighteen. Know, I can't remember exactly what happened, but I remember not liking it at all. And I had panic. Huh. But I took a CBD just to test it out before I went to sleep. And I woke up the next day and I felt like I was having menopause all over again. I was wow. having anxiety attacks. I couldn't focus. I couldn't, I couldn't organize my thoughts the next day. I was like, this is not working. Dr. So, Stay is smiling. Is he? I, I just wanted to make a, not for that pain that you're going through. <laughs> it, it is funny to be fair. <laughs> no, I don't need it. I sleep great. I don't need it. I'm, you know, it might help my my joints, uh, we got it. We got you. I don't need to feel like that. Okay, yeah. that's yeah, yeah. I just wanted to make a brief point about CBD because it's you know it is still largely unregulated and it's really about a, a buyer beware approach because there's been studies that have actually tested the online 
samples of CBD products that you buy. And many of those products don't have things more than CBD in them. So some have found THC in them. Some have found synthetic um, THC and, and some have even found DXM, which is sort of a, uh, a chemical and cough syrup that kind of gets you high. Oh, oh. dextromethorphan. Yeah. Yes. I know well that one. Done. I got an email about somebody who's addicted to it. You can read that one later. All right. All right. Um, but but let's go back to the, the the mood and anxiety relationship with cannabis. What what is your findings there? Sure. The um, the literature is is very interesting with with both uh, mood and anxiety. With with mood, we know that the um, the endocannabinoid system is involved in mood regulation, and the reason that we know that is when we when we give people what's called CB1 antagonists, it can produce a kind of um, uh, depressive symptoms. And we know that um, CBD can bind, it can increase serotonin-related activity. So that's very exciting because it means that there's a possibility to develop cannabis-based medicines for depression. But, and it's a big but, the research that we do have shows that, um, the body of research shows that cannabis actually leads can lead to the development and worsening of depressive symptoms in people. So that's really, it's a hard thing to get our minds around because it suggests that we can develop cannabis-based medicines for depression, but it also cautions against people self-medicating for depression with cannabis because the evidence shows that it makes it worse. Gosh, Um, I get that. (laughs) That's what the millennials are having problems with. That's exactly right. It's so complex. Oh, it's a very complicated molecule or a series of molecules. But, but, but the, um, Oh shoot! What I was gonna, oh I, I was gonna bring up that for a while there there was a lot of active research on CB2 receptor antagonism. If you remember, this was gonna be a treatment for obesity. Remember this? Were you around Dutch day when that was all going on? I, I know less about that. I'm, I'm curious okay. to hear okay. about it. Okay, so it was a big thing. I forget the name of the molecule or the drug. It started with an I. Uh, excuse me, an R. It started with a name like Ramonaband. 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 Everybody got depressed. That's why they abandoned it. It yeah. worked as an appetite suppressant. So when you when you stimulate CB two receptor, you get hungry and you get hungry for yummy things. But the part of the yummy is part of that nurturing activation, that nurturing oh. thing. And so if you block those nurturing receptors, people don't feel so good. It's the anti nurturing feeling associated with depression, right? And so these Ramonabat patients would all get these very protean weird depressions, and to the point that it just got. No good. It just got abandoned entirely. Yeah, yeah, no, no efficacy for it for for being helpful in any way, really. Well, it, I got to tell you, I saw a lot of appetite suppression, but it was the same kind of <laughs> appetite suppression you'd see from depression. <laughs> so, right. so, right. so you just make everybody depressed. What we're saying, so right. it, it was just not a good a good combination. So, going, I, go ahead. I was going to say, and I, I find the relationship with cannabis and anxiety to be even more interesting. Yeah, go ahead. Um, because we know that. Um, so the, the two big chemicals in cannabis that we talk about are THC and CBD. THC in low doses has been found to be, um, it can be stress relieving and anxiety relieving, but in higher doses, it's anxiety inducing and can be panic inducing. But CBD has been found to be, to be shown to be anxiolytic. So a lot about, so whether someone experiences anxiety when they're taking cannabis depends on, on many different factors not only including the proportions and the potencies of the cannabis molecules that you're getting, but also someone's predisposition to something like an anxiety disorder. Um, and the, the other complicated layer of, of things is that um, cannabis withdrawal, anxiety is a symptom 
of cannabis withdrawal. So when people tell us that they're using cannabis and it helps with their anxiety, it's hard to know whether that's just mitigation of withdrawal and just taking right. that withdrawal. Right. And the withdrawal, the withdrawal lasts a couple of weeks. Paranoia is a common feature of the withdrawal and sleeplessness. That's their big complaint. Uh, Gosh. Um, yeah, that, that happens. So I'm convinced that, again, the, the mole- several of the molecules in cannabis are neuromodulatory. And my sense of what cannabis does with panic, because panic is sort of an, a circuit that opens up in your brain and just goes. And am I, having been had panic, and I think related to cannabis exposure, and seen patients with severe disabling panic disorders after only a like like in the setting of getting high, they it's came on. That it, it, I wonder if it opens up a, a circuit, uh, what we call a circus circuit. It just keeps going in some individuals that are genetically predisposed. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, that, that's that's very interesting to me. Yeah. Um, I and I think it kind of touches upon uh, probably the most important point I think in that article that I wrote in Scientific American was that um, the the motive for using cannabis really matters when it comes to psychiatric disorders. So. If someone is using cannabis to escape from thoughts, from memories, from difficult emotions, if they're trying to use it to escape in that moment, that's not helpful. It may, it may help you in the short term. Like if you drink alcohol, it'll take away your anxiety in the short term. But that doesn't mean that you're resolving an anxiety disorder or a depressive disorder. And in fact, it can make it worse in the long run because what it does is it robs the person in their brain the chance to practice healthy adapting coping skills that are needed to resolve the disorder in the first place. So I think that's a really, really important point. Well, and whenever anybody says they're trying to avoid pain, I always think post-trauma, some sort of traumatic pain. I think that's why I was using it. For trauma? Yeah, after I broke my leg and lost my job. But it didn't work. It didn't work. So but I can see how that would make you more depressed because that's definitely what it did. Yeah. Let's go back to another topic, which is pain, which is equally as complicated. And I, I've always been on the record saying, you know, I'd rather treat somebody who got strung out on cannabis to manage their pain than somebody who got strung out on an opiate right. to manage it. Or if they can switch over to cannabis, that's an improvement. Where do you, where do we, how do we understand pain in cannabis? You know, again, that that's another fascinating area. Um, you know, tr- public perception is that cannabis is very efficacious for pain. There's the, some of the newer research that's coming out um, is actually showing that cannabis is the 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 helpfulness for cannabis for pain is actually weaker than a lot of people think, and that, that's really unfortunate. Actually, I think I, I read that um, some of the estimates. There's a, a statistic called the number needed to treat, and the, the number is 20. So it means that for, for, um, for a person to experience a 50% reduction in pain, you need 20, 20 people have to come along, and you, you only one person will have a, a 50% reduction in pain. So that's not very good, and that's actually similar to um, estimates for um, opioids in the treatment of chronic pain. So... That said, this whole which are also, liter- which are also literature not, is not a good treatment for chronic pain. Opiates, not a good no, treatment for chronic pain. Exactly. So, so they're both not very good. Um, that said, the research is riddled with limitations. Um, we don't know. We don't have a lot of long-term follow-ups on it. We we don't have a lot of good controls about are we looking at THC, CBD, different proportions, right. um, all, all those sorts of things. So, the good news is that there's we know the the cannabis system that we have is involved in pain, 
And the good news is that there's going to be a lot of research coming out, hopefully that'll look at that. But at the, at the current time, the research doesn't look so good um, for that area, despite what people might think. Do you think that there is a placebo effect? So if people think that cannabis... Uh, There's always does, a placebo effect. Right. So okay. who knows? Okay. But now we're not talking about CBD. We're talking about THC. Can, we're talking about THC plus. No. Okay. About cannabis. Yeah. My mom just had I, breast cancer. And, wait, um, I just did once. Oh, you want sorry. to clarify something I just said? Well, no, I, I just think that that's a great question that, that, to wonder whether a placebo effect is involved. And that's something that uh, research would, would look at as well as a potential right. compound. They, they so, they yeah, placebo, placebo works. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, and um, uh, I was just going to say, my mum had just had breast cancer, and we were told about a particular ki- ti- ki- type of cannabis called um, Rick Simpson, who was, I think, a, a chap who had had cancer and developed this particular strain of cannabis to help reduce cancer symptoms. And what what was really really interesting was that her tumor. And it was big. You could see it through her breast. Her tumor shrank significantly. And a friend of mine, her mother, had stage four ovarian cancer, also took uh, this particular cannabis and is now in remission no and other healthy. Uh, well, see, this is it. Uh, right. Yeah. So. Yes, exactly. So it's so complex. Radiotherapy no, yeah, and that's, that chemotherapy. Will, yes, that's, that's what causes remission. You can't, you can't say it did anything. Because we well, know those things can cause remission. We have no idea this other thing could. So, Well, no, I think uh, before, actually, before she started her chemotherapy, because she had to have the operation first, and she was having like very gentle chemotherapy. Well, she maybe, it's, maybe it, it reduces some of the inflammation around the tumor. Oh, I see. That would make sense. Because it does have, let's talk about anti-inflammatory effects, and then we'll wrap it up. Dr. Steyer. Yeah, um, we we know that CBD can have, particularly CBD can have anti-inflammatory effects. Um, you know, certainly cannabis, again, that's it, another one of the areas in popular media where it's touted as a, as a treatment for cancer and um, as a panacea for all ailments. Um, I'm, I'm less familiar with that literature other than to say I know that there's some preclinical or animal studies that, that, that do look at it as um, in, in terms of cancer remission. Uh, but that stuff is very, very new area of research. And, um, you know, again, I think the research is warranted in an area, but sure. at the same time, we don't want to get people's hopes up. Right. Okay, Dr. Stea, we can follow you at Jonathan Stea, S-T-A. Uh, also look for you at Slate and Skeptic.com with a C, Skeptic. Uh, where else can we find you? Uh, yeah, Twitter is great. I'll, I'll probably be having a new Scientific American article be coming out uh, in the next week or two about cannabis and opioid addiction. So, oh, interesting. Uh, I'll be posting that on Twitter. We'll look for that. So look for him at Jonathan, T-H-A-N, Stea, S-T-E-A, one word. And we appreciate you spending some time with us. It's really interesting. Very, thank you. Thank you. Very, very much appreciate the invitation. Thank you. you. Got it. We'll take a break. Be right back. <laughs> Well, CBDs are everywhere, right? Everyone's talking about them, and it's a topic that I get asked about all the time. Bottom line on CBD, although there are way more claims made about them, the clinical evidence right now, it's not all that clear, but many people are using it and reporting great results, and they are very encouraging. So I want to first define exactly what I'm talking about here. CBD is cannabidiol, an extract from hemp. While you might associate with marijuana, CBD does not cause reinforcement. It is not the reinforcing component of hemp, but it is what's responsible for the calming or some of the relaxing effects that many people experience, not the high. Now about the products. There are a ton of them on the market today. 
For getting the vast array of the reported health benefits, it's important to be aware of what you're buying. I was recently introduced to a company called Select CBD, an Oregon-based company that focuses on high-quality ingredients and manufacturing standards. Not the hype. Their CBD-based products are available in a wide range of formulations and flavors, each of which is described to you so you can make an informed decision without all those promises that are probably too good to be true. Like I said, the reported benefits of CBD by individuals using this are very compelling. I'm excited to see how things develop as the science catches up with this booming industry. As usual, the public is ahead of the science. I can't make explicit claims yet, but boy, the reports are pretty encouraging. So if you're ready to try CBD, I encourage you to check out Select CBD. To learn more, go to drdrew.com slash select. That's on my site, drdrew.com slash S-E-L-E-C-T. And for a limited time, you can save 25% at checkout with the code drdrew, D-R-D-R-E-W. Again, drdrew.com slash select, and then the code D-R-D-R-E-W. Okay, we are back. It's just Simone and I now. And, uh, it, you know, anything, when you start to look at human physiology and biochemistry particularly, it just gets more and more and more and more complicated as you go along. It, it does. Yeah. And, and that was so interesting for me because it just seems the, the more research there is, the more, um, more uh, contradiction. Yeah. Well, more complicated it becomes. I'm, I'm not sure it's contradiction. It's just what we have to figure out is how to select the right patient for the right use in the right context and the right uh, dosing and this is what medical research is all about and it takes time to develop uh-huh. that and people are rushing out into just using it on their own and so great you know what we as physicians can't can't recommend it yet because we just don't we have to have evidence based for what we do now we can collect lots of data now and anecdotes from people because everyone's using all this yeah. stuff um, and so we can use that to sort of have some clinical judgment about it but we can't really say anything right you got to have the data to say something and it's it's a very interesting system the, the and there will be i see my position is there's going to be therapeutic use of hallucinogens yes. of cannabis of opiates mdma, MDMA mm-hmm. all going to be useful now that we got out of our out of our own way yeah stop calling molecules evil schedule yeah. one literally says humans should never touch this molecule that's a that's a ridiculous mm-hmm. ridiculous mm-hmm. notion. Well, it, and it's sort of it's it's it takes the trust away from the humans, as in it. Yeah, it makes the, it makes the molecule imbued with satanic <laughs> properties, which is <laughs> fucking ridiculous. Right, right, right. It's just bizarre. So let's let's see if I get some questions here for us. Uh, let's see, lots of great questions. Oh my goodness. Mm, ooh, from low blood flow from a serious heart attack with a flailed mitral valve, lost two toes on my left foot due to nerve damage. I have a long-term pain syndrome now on 50 milligram met fentanyl patch. Have stopped several times, but the pain is excruciating. I was on Vicodin, but stopped that still on gabapentin. Well, I mean, so he has he had a serious heart attack. Right. So what happens is the Gosh. he loses he lost the muscle right through the wall of his heart, and your mitral valve is the main inflow of the left ventricle, uh-huh. and it and it's tacked down by these things called cordy. But the cordy or heart muscle, if the muscle is dead, the cordies break loose and the mitral valve flails. It's called flail mitral valve. Ouch. And that's not good. Oh, uh, and it sounds like he might have thrown some clots or something off that. Oy. And they went to his foot and now he has chronic pain there. And he has, he's using a 50 milligram fentanyl patch, 50 microgram rather, fentanyl patch. And, w- and what is that? Fentanyl. Mm-hmm. That's the drug that everyone's using when they think they're taking heroin, but they actually get fentanyl and it kills them. Oh, it's like a hundred times more powerful than oh my heroin. gosh and car fentanyl which is a hundred times stronger than that wow. and it's coming up from China and now the Mexican cartels are making it so it's oh, coming up through gosh. the border but 
as a therapeutic uh-huh. uh, drug, this is what it's meant for, things like this. He's actually getting the right treatment. I have no objection to this man taking his fentanyl. Please take the fentanyl and the gabapentin. And how long You're will he have, have to pain. take that? No, the rest of his life. Oh, I mean, he's got a horrible sure. problem there. Yeah, yeah, that's bad. Uh, I read that 75% of people go through a heavy drinking phase at age 18 to 24. I have blacked out more times than I can count. Urinated on, people, urinated on people's belongings, woken up in strange places. But I haven't since age 24. Since then, just copious weed abuse. Am I an alcoholic or just a pothead? See, I don't see those two things as distinct. You're either an addict or you're not. Right. And what your drug of choice is is sort of your the manifestation of your addiction. That's all. Would you and, put sugar in there? You know, when you talk about addicts, would you put... Yeah, I mean, sugar fits all the sort of criteria. I, I get a little nervous about calling, you know, carbohydrate and sugars. I mean, yeah, I have a sugar and a carbohydrate withdrawal when I stop taking it. I get irritable, desperate. I get all the heroin withdrawal symptoms. Gosh. But they're pretty mild. And the consequences don't necessarily mount with time. Right. I, I don't know. It, it's a hard thing. For, it has addictive properties. If it helps somebody look at it as an addiction, so fine. Right. Okay. Uh, so there's been OA forever. So there is 12-step for, you know, eating compulsions. Hmm. Um, but back to this guy. I don't know about 75% going through heavy drinking, but even binge drinking, you should not be blinking at, blanking, blacking out more times than you can count. You should not be getting up and urinating on people's belongings. Uh-huh. That is alcoholism full on. And now you've transitioned over to some other chemical. And a better one. So there we go. Okay, Drew, something that you say about the word um, alcoholic, and you say that in some ways, uh, certainly for people who are sober, it 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 sort of carries a a badge. It's some it's something positive for them. Mm-hmm. They identify positively with it. Um, uh, when I was listening to um, that nice uh, listener of yours, uh, it seems to me pothead seems <laughs> such a gentle nice thing <laughs> oh he's a pothead yeah and um the images i have with that is just somebody very gentle and relaxed and then you think of an alcoholic and it's like ah scary now this could be my own you know projection and yeah. sort of you know how i've been um I interpreting think, information I think here uh alcoholic is such a widely used term that there's a low threshold to call somebody an alcoholic and they don't feel it so pejoratively. Ah. Pothead implies lazy and all kinds of other pejoratives. Right. I would I would argue the pothead sounds a little worse. How interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's fascinating. Yeah. I, you, for me, I'm completely the opposite. Yeah. I think, so oh, he's a pothead. And, and so I, I am not... I don't know. I am not that much on nomenclature around addiction. I, I just, we, I think we make way too much of it. In an attempt to reduce stigma, we make stigma worse by right. worrying about the words we attach to it. It's like, look, every ex addict I know calls himself or herself a junkie. Everyone, and they, yeah. they and they wear the junkie moniker. You know, Bob's a junkie, and but we talk about his junkie. He still right. has junkie behaviors, right. and he, we laugh about it. It's not a pejorative. Right. And just because somebody called him a junkie had nothing to do with coming to recovery or not. Had nothing to do with it. Right. Believe me, it's a not keeping people out of the program. And I've, I've heard you um, say actually uh, about um, alcoholics, and this was very interesting when I was actually talking about uh, some people in, in uh, my life, and you went, Oh, alcoholics, they are just my favorite people. They are so rich, so, so creative, yeah, yeah. so yeah. intelligent. There's so much great stuff that comes and, with that. And that's so <laughs> nice yeah. to hear. Yeah, the, the genetics of alcoholism is an extremely rich genetic 
field mm-hmm. of people of intelligent and creativity and survivor. They're survivors right. better than anybody. I mean, they, 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 I believe it's a survivor gene because when, wow. when, when a population is highly stressed, particularly genocidal stress, alcoholic gene emerges. They're the ones that survive. And My particular multi goodness. look at look at look what England did to Scotland yeah. for Shh. several hundred years. Oh, did you and, have and, to? And bring when that. They, and when they left it, when it was all yes. done, yeah, all alcoholics up there. Yeah, the same thing with Ireland. Same thing. North American Indians. Same thing. Certain parts of Central Europe. Same that is thing. Fascinating. Yeah, have you, you isolate, reason about that? It's sort of kind of obvious. I mean, if you, it, it's an isolated population, generational assaults, military genocidal assaults. There it is. Alcoholism emerges. And um, Russia. Russia. Again, yeah. the, the western part of Russia, really, especially. Yeah. Right? Which is where all the wars kept going yes, back yes, and yes. forth. Yeah. And the people... That is so and, interesting. Please write about that. That uh, is just, absolutely yeah. fascinating. Yeah. So, and it... Well, what I would used to do when I first recognized that, I was watching the movie Braveheart, and they portrayed that. Right. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's right. And so I went back to... I would give lectures to my patients every week. And I started every week going, now, if I if a bomb went off in the parking lot, what would you guys do? 85% of them, without exception. I'd go, I'd run towards it. I'd run to go see what's going on. Wow. I'm like, I mean, as a non-alcoholic, uh-huh. is that your impulse? No. <laughs> no, no, you'd no. run the other way. Yes. And I, then I would say, well, how about if a bunch of Huns came over the hill with spears? What are you going to do? I'd grab something and go at them, <gasps> most of them. And so wow. evidently... My my theory would be that in that kind of a situation, you're more likely to survive when you fight than if you run and get a spear in your back, mm. right? Yes, yes, I, yes. I guess. Yes, I mean, that's yeah. something about that. And they make great shortstops and great extreme athletes. And they're, they're times, so fascinating. Time slows down for them. Their anxiety goes away in extreme situations where the rest of us feel uncomfortable. They feel most comfortable. Right? This I I do you know what um this is your next book this is so <laughs> fascinating because nobody talks about this yeah, yeah. there's such shame well it, which is ridiculous and that's what I, that's why I think the shame around addiction alcoholism is bizarre for right. somebody that deals with these people all the time but but it's a nice way of understanding that we are a genetically rich field of human beings, right? right? This is just one version where there's this disease that comes along with this genetic or these series of genes. And now we know some of these genes. And there are many, many other sort of groupings of human beings with very interesting characteristics, right? And I I don't think we have that enough. We don't think about that enough. See, mm. what we were just talking about Dr. Staya and, and pot. Some people hate it. Some people love it. Yes. Different genetic groupings. You hated it. I got panic yes. attacks. Different different genetics. Yes, yes, yes. It's really, it's really interesting. Now, the really interesting stuff is if we one day are able to go, oh, yes, you have these sort of characteristic 17 genes, and here's how your mind works differently than somebody else. Wouldn't that be fascinating? And do you think, though, that how, how far away are we from doing research on years. that? years. Well, uh, we're doing research on it all the time, but... But but really, we we right. don't we don't even understand yet the relationship between our how our brain works and how our mind works, right? Oh yes, Let I, alone... I I heard a neuroscientist talk. I think it was uh, uh, I can't remember some lecture I was listening to, and they said maybe in two generations, if we continue yeah. with yes. doing the the speed that we are of yes. neuroscience, maybe in two generations, he said it's not going to be in my lifetime. Right. And then he said, and it will be the tip, the tiniest tip of the iceberg. And I find that so fascinating. I love it, and and, and I will tell you, I've I've seen it. You know, I got involved in neuroscience when I was an undergraduate, and I've seen it come on wow. a lot across mm-hmm. my career. But I'll tell you, there's one place they're missing, and that is the 
the neuroscientists don't think enough about interpersonal, intersubjective neurobiology. It's out there. Some people think about it. They don't think about it enough because I think it's the it's the ability to see ourselves from the point of view of another human being that gives us a sense of self and consciousness. So it's a co-created thing, and brains together react in very interesting ways. Mm. Very well, interesting it, way. It, and it's, it's um, fascinating. There was a Harvard study on happiness, yeah. and it was talking exactly about this. People were thinking, oh, again, was it, you know, was it success? Was it finances, mm -hmm. wealth, abundance, and all this stuff? And no, no. it was relationships. Yeah, always. connection, connection, always. connection. Always, always. And, and just to your point earlier about how this is the area that we struggle in most. Um, I, I, I pray right now, right now, right now I, I pray, I pray, I pray that we do focus on it because this is where we need. To, I'm hearing it in the public discourse more. The idea, community, 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 service, yes. service, service. These kinds of words are coming up again now. Finally, yeah. But family is where it really has got to be sort of directed. Yes. Healthy families, or something like that. Um, and we've just sort of forsaken that for some reason. Yeah, it's um. Yes, well, uh, yeah, and that's a whole other And, and then also all of our craziness area. comes out in our interpersonal lives, too. Yes, exactly. All our lovely projections, <laughs> or, unconscious projections. Or, or whatever it is, it all shows up there. Yeah. <laughs> if you, all of our stuff just comes pouring out. Yes. So that, I that's don't know it. what you're talking about. That's, <laughs> that's why I used to do like to do Love Line so much, because it would just yeah. be like, oh, my God, you could just see right into people's psychopathology yes. just based on the, their patterning and behavior. And, and, and I... I and their fear, their fear, their, their longing to be loved and cared for. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember a call we took where somebody was talking about, you know, we, we talk about love. And he said, I just didn't have that in my family. Mm -hmm. So I, he, he had no reference point. So, so how do you do love? How do you develop it if you've never had it? Yeah. Whatever it is, whatever that. Yeah. You, you the fill is. in the blank for any emotional sort yeah. of interpersonal experience. Yeah. And, it, and, and this is actually the, the area that I work in, which is, um, you know, uh, using our unconscious mind uh, to really uh, work with our conscious mind. I mean, this sounds sort of like a little bit abstract, but how we are such extraordinary, magnificent human beings. We are extraordinary. And when we know, just like you were saying, how to lead with the heart mm -hmm. as well as the head, because my big thing is that I think uh, there is such a focus on the intellect. and The cognitive. The intellect and the cognitive, which is a tiny piece of what's going on. And you mentioned the heart. You have a giant brain that sits here. We have a couple yes. of parasympathetic nets in here that are just these peripheral brains in our body. So, yes, our body is the source of our feelings. Mm -hmm. Our feelings get processed as emotions, and that tends to direct our thoughts. Yes. And, if we, and we're not even aware of it. And so that whole piece of what's going on in our body and our emotions... We, we, again, don't pay enough attention to. Now, let me throw something out there that um, I'm going to uh, mention an Indian guru. So um, he was saying, and he's somebody I really, really like, someone called Sri Sri Ravi Shankar. He was talking about that actually our body Does he play is, the sitar? It, no, but, uh, <laughs> but there, Ravi is, there is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's, he's a genius as well. But that our bodies are in our minds. Of course. Oh, our, par our parasympathetic nervous our body is embedded through the parasympathetic nervous system and the sensory system in our midbrain. 
Well, he says he says our minds are outside of our bodies. Our minds are outside of our so bodies. So you have our brain, mm. but our minds mm. are well, outside. Well, they're certainly out here in the yes. interpersonal, yeah. Yeah. So, and it's like, um, uh, I'm sure listeners, you know, when somebody uh, comes either too close to you uh-huh. or you want somebody to be closer, you know, closer yeah. that, that is, we can feel it, mm-hmm. not necessarily when they're touching, mm-hmm. you know, our, our skin. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that again blows my mind. But well, it's, I, I did a, uh, if you go to the Dr. Drew podcast, I have a series of uh, pods on the emotionally focused therapies where I, I was the subject of that and I've wow. done it with other people and we had some therapists in there and we all talked about how we would experience thoughts music, smells, bodily-based experiences that weren't ours, Mm -hmm. that were communicated by the patients. We knew they weren't ours because we'd never experienced them before, but we listened to them, reflect them back to the patient, and they have deep meaning to the patient. Yeah, and that stuff is trippy and and magical. Magical, and and it's where a lot of richness exists. Yes, absolutely. End it right there. Uh, Yes, producer. Yes, yes, they're giving us the wrap-up sign. So, oh, Simone, as always, thank you so for being here. So lovely to be here. Yes. Thank Don't you. Don't go so thank long without so doing much. a pod with us, and uh, we'll see you all next time. Oh, say again, what's more, what's more we can find you, Simone? Well, um, uh, you can email me with any questions, um, info at simonebn.com. I've got a new website launching in April, and you can find me on Twitter at simonebn and at... Simone Bien on Instagram as well. I'm still off them. I'm still off social media. Good I'm making you. a big comeback. Well, it was actually, and this is another story which I won't go into, but let's just say I needed to concentrate on the project I was working on. Yeah, yeah. But come April, it's it's the big party. Find her again, social media. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, guys. We'll see you next time. All right, that's about it for this episode of This Life. Thanks for listening and subscribing on your favorite platforms. Rate us five stars and tell a friend. Also, be sure to visit drdrew.com for the latest news. We'll tell you where you can find all of our health-related content, including the latest in-depth series, The History of Opium. You can now listen to it on the weekly Infusion podcast. We have some great and very interesting and appropriate interviews with key historical players in the history of opium. We're excited about our newest podcast, Dr. Drew After Dark, which has been described as a dark web reboot of Loveline. It's the hottest guest spot for all the most popular comedians. Beware, it is for a mature audience. It is kind of a reboot of Loveline. You can hear the episodes first in a podcast forum Thursday. Then on Friday, you can watch all the video episodes when the YouTube page drops on the Your Mom's House YouTube channel. New episodes every week. Subscribe, tell a friend. Also on Doctor.com, you can find Swole Patrol, our health and fitness podcast with Mike Catherwood. If you want something a bit more refined that will expand your intellectual horizons, please subscribe to the Dr. Drew Podcast, where I feature a wide variety of very interesting and important guests. Get in-depth interviews there. Last but not least, me and Adam, Adam and Dr. Drew Show Podcast. It's a lot of fun, and we are still together, and you can get it five days a week. So go to drdrew.com, please tell a friend, and we thank you for it. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.